the oldest group of freshwater kids is going to find their way out of the room this morning. For the rest of us, I'm going to ask that you would take your copy of God's Word and turn it to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, as we talk today about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects the church. That's going to be page 907 in your pew Bible. If you have one of those close to you, you find page 907, and we'll begin reading in chapter 21 in just a second. By the way, I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are ecstatic that you're here. Just let you know about a gift that we have waiting for you. When you walked in this morning, you received a worship guide. On the inside of that worship guide is what we call our Connect card, and if you will fill out that contact information and drop that off at the Connect table, which is located in the foyer on your way out, they've got a free t-shirt waiting for you and everyone in your party. It is now post-Halloween, isn't it? We're in that stretch where life begins to dump holiday event after holiday event into your lap. And what our family is doing right now is we're doing the best that we can to eat every piece of candy that we have assembled from all these trunk or treats and these Halloween parties and everything else that we went to. And I know what you do, parents. You, You tell your kids that you're inspecting their candy, and you tell your kids that you're making sure there aren't any razor blades in the Laffy Taffy, or there's no poison, whatever that is, mixed in with the gummy drops, and um, I also know that there have been almost no recorded instances where any of that has ever happened, so what you're really doing is you're building an inventory in your mind of what's there so you can steal from your children after they fall asleep. I get it. I do it myself. I want you to know there's room at the cross for you, just the same as it is uh, for me. But my father, some of you know this, one Halloween when he was a child, he received what was his favorite candy bar, a Butterfinger. You all like Butterfingers? Yeah, Butterfingers are are delicious. Uh, And if you like Butterfingers, imagine that you've got it in your hand. You've ripped open the top of that little wrapper. You're lifting it up to your mouth, and your mouth is kind of getting wet, anticipating all of that buttery goodness, when you look down and you see a giant hairball sitting on the top of that Butterfinger candy bar. And um, that's what happened to my father. Hair and food don't mix generally, do they? I I don't even like stringy cheese. Do you all know the stringy cheese where it looks like there's hair and you're trying to decide, is there hair in this or is this just cheese? It grosses me out. And my father was so grossed out that Halloween as a child that he vowed that he would never again eat a Butterfinger, and he actually took that vow to the grave. Now, some of you have had that kind of a Butterfinger moment, except you had it with a church, didn't you? You had fallen in love with a church, or you had fallen in love with the church, we could say. You had gotten excited to be a part of it. You were spiritually salivating at the mouth, we could even say. But then something happened, and it was so bad, and it was so unlike anything that you'd experienced up until that point, that you vowed to yourself that you could never be a part of something like that again. And you may not be able to relate to that, but I bet that you know people or love people that can It may have been a situation that involved leadership, maybe not. It may have been a situation that involved doctrine, maybe not. But something happened, something occurred, and whatever it was, it was so bad, you just kind of rode off the church from that point forward. Well, in John's gospel, we get to now, after Christ has done what? After he's risen from the grave, John reminds us of the importance of what is going to become the church. 
And he reminds us of the importance of the church by being brutally honest about its shortcomings, but also by kind of a, giving a template as to what the church needs to remember and what the church needs to avoid. So maybe if you're sitting there and you had at one point given up on the church, or maybe you're to that point right now, uh, hopefully John is going to share some things in this account that can once again help us to fall in love with the bride of Christ, the church. Now here's kind of how the account unfolds. Remember where we are after a year and a half we've made it to the very last chapter in the Gospel of John. John has just, at the end of chapter 20, told us the purpose of the Gospel when he says that these things are written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that when we would believe, we would have life in his name. Jesus has died. He's risen. He's appeared to who? Mary Magdalene, then the disciples, and then to Thomas. We saw all of those accounts last week. And this book ends with Jesus continuing to appear to the disciples as he prepares them for when he's going to go back to heaven. And this 21st chapter opens with a fishing expedition. Now you might hear that and you might say, what in the world does a fishing expedition have to do with the church? And that's a great question with a great answer. Most people claim that John is intentionally showing how the resurrection of Jesus is going to influence and change how the apostles function in the world. So Jesus has died... Jesus is risen. Jesus is very very soon going to ascend and and take his place, his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. And this fishing expedition is not just a fishing expedition, but that what happens is metaphoric for what is going to happen in Jesus' church as he ascends and he sends the Holy Spirit and he watches how the Holy Spirit causes the gospel to infiltrate all parts of the world. So this morning, Jesus appears to the disciples once again, But as he appears, John is recording this, not just to record another historical account of Jesus appearing, but John wants us to see how we are to function as Christ's church in the world. So having kind of set the stage, we're going to look at 14 verses this morning. In those 14 verses, we're going to see four characteristics of Christ's church as it ministers in the world. I'm going to share those four characteristics as we advance through the text Um, I'll also tell you that if you call Freshwater your home, it would be good for you to evaluate Freshwater in light of the scripture that we're looking at. So uh, are we doing a good job? Are we doing a not-so-good job? Is there room for improvement? And by the way, the answer to that one is yes. And if there's room for improvement, where is that room for improvement? How should we improve? How should we pursue that improvement? So four characteristics of Christ's church as it ministers in the world. I'm going to give you the first characteristic, and then we'll read verses 1 through 5. Christ's church is honest about its failures. That's the first characteristic. If you're doing the fill-in thing in your sermon outline, the first one is Christ's church is honest about its failures. Look at verses 1 through 5. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Stop right there. Y'all know we're going to pick up in verse 6 after a bit. But the account opens by telling us which disciples are present. So it's basically painting a picture of the setting of the account. And Simon Peter, this is the same Simon Peter that recently denied Jesus three times. Remember that. That Simon Peter has decided, hey man, I'm going fishing. 
Now remember, Simon Peter was a, a fisherman by trade. So I don't know if this is a picture of Peter getting bored after Jesus has appeared and he hasn't reappeared, or if this is a picture of him simply returning to what he's good at, but he decides to go catch some fish. They make their way out to the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, and um, they're going at night because that's the best time to fish. And just as the sun is beginning to come up, Jesus, standing on the shore, asks them, he says, Hey, fellas, children, have you caught any fish? And you notice that just like last week with Mary Magdalene, just like on the road to Emmaus in, in, in Luke chapter 24, and just like the other accounts as well, they don't recognize him. Now, it's a little bit easier to understand how they don't recognize Jesus in this account. I mean, they're in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're, Jesus is on the shore, so there's quite a distance separating them um, But at the same time, nonetheless, I want us to focus on their answer to the question. How do they answer the question? They respond to his question by answering, no. No, we haven't got any fish. And I don't want us to kind of rush over that. Because, gentlemen, I know that we can feel what is occurring here. If you have ever been hunting, if you've ever been fishing, you know the disappointment that can be felt when you have invested a whole day and you have nothing to show for it. You understand what that feels like. I mean, I remember mushroom hunting just this last spring, walking through the woods one hour into it, and I had found nothing, not one mushroom. And I know they're out there because other people are finding them, and I resolved in my heart, I am not going back empty-handed, not because I want to ensure that I've got enough to fry up for the family, that's not it at all, but because I don't want to admit that I didn't find anything. It's not okay with me to do that. So I will hunt for four hours to find one itty-bitty shriveled up morel mushroom that ain't even worth cooking it ain't even worth heating up the skillet rather than to go back with nothing to show for my efforts it's a pride thing isn't it i don't want to admit that i've been coming that i'm coming back and and not having anything to show for my efforts yet the disciples they look to jesus and they answer him with complete and total honesty Which tells me that if this account is meant to be a picture of how Christ's church ministers in the world, church, we need not be ashamed of the times when it feels like we've been defeated. We need not be ashamed of the times when it seems like we're coming home from ministry empty-handed. Now, the reason we don't need to be ashamed because of our failure is, is seen in the second characteristic. Christ's church is honest about his failures, but secondly, it is also thrilled with obedience. Christ's church is thrilled with obedience. Because look with me now at verse 6 in your copy of God's Word. Verse 6 says, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So they're fishing. They're empty-handed. Jesus tells them what to do, and they obey his command. It's really that simple. It's, it's really that easy. And what this shows us is, I believe... Obedience is the great qualifier of success in ministry. And you need to catch that. Obedience is the great qualifier of success in ministry. And we could also say obedience is the great qualifier of success in your life as well. Now I know that some of you will say, no, the fish are the great qualifier of success. Like look at the harvest. Look at everything that they're bringing in. That's when you know you've been successful when you've got this great harvest. For us that would be, that's when you know you've been successful when you've got all these new people that are coming to your church and and, and who want to join your church. But I don't think that's the point. I think the point is not so much that the net was full. I think the point is that they did what Jesus told them to do. 
And even if they would have pulled in that net and there would have been no fish whatsoever, they had been obedient. They had been obedient. And by the way, that's exactly what you and I need to desire from ourselves, but that's exactly what you and I need to desire from this church, from any church. Simple, faithful obedience. Now, don't hear me wrong. We believe in what is called justification by faith. If you don't know what that is, that means that that when you repented and when you believed in Christ and Christ alone, you were justified in the eyes of God. God made a righteous declaration that you were now forgiven for your sin. God gave you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That was not based on any effort that you could offer to merit that salvation. It was based simply on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. When that happened, you were justified and you were sealed in the Holy Spirit. At the same time, the Bible clearly tells us that obedience is evidence that that event really happened. And disobedience is evidence likewise that maybe it hasn't. Listen to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. All of that is to say you should not gauge whether or not this church or any other church for that matter is successful or impactful or whatever word that we want to use. You should not gauge that based on numbers necessarily. You should not gauge that based necessarily on worship style. You should not gauge that necessarily based on average age of the congregation. You should not base that necessarily on offerings. You should not base that necessarily on decibel level reach during the music. You should base that, to the best of your ability, on obedience. On obedience. If a church is obedient, guess what? It's successful in the eyes of God. And if it's successful in the eyes of God, then who cares what the world thinks about it? I mean, I think about the elections this week. Lord, help us. Can I get a witness? I wish I had some wonderful revelation to give you on this, but honestly, I don't. What I will tell you is that whatever we do, we want to do it to the glory of God. So if you vote this week, do it to the glory of God and trust that this awesome God who is sovereign in every single way has all of this in the power of his hands. But I was listening to a, a local representative who has since retired, but not, ever, not very long ago was still campaigning, and he was talking about the effort that it took to win even what would be like a local representative election. And he said that he would himself knock on over 10,000 doors every election year. That's just him himself. That's not even including all the people that he had knocking on doors for him. Even local elections can cost tens of thousands of dollars. The governor's race here in Missouri, don't think that having a Chris Coster or Eric Greitens commercial every 30 seconds on your TV comes cheap, my friends. In, at the beginning of October, they had already spent over $20 million in advertisements. That was the beginning of October. I'm sure it's doubled by this point. And so much more, all of us know, has been spent on a national level. But in just a couple days, not very long at all, in just a couple days, at least one candidate in every race is going to know whether that paid off. And in those types of races, it's a very tangible 
measurable means by which we can know if they succeeded or if they lost. Either, guess what? They're in office or they're not. But the ministry of the church is not necessarily like that because our success rate is measured in obedience to God. God may sometimes bless that obedience with tangible, measurable things, and sometimes, frankly, he won't. But he's still God either way. He's still completely worthy of our worship either way. We need not be discouraged. We need not be heartbroken. We have only one thing to worry about. Are we being obedient? Are we being obedient? So Christ Church is honest about its failures. It's thrilled with obedience. Now Christ Church doesn't forget about others. That's the third one. It doesn't forget about others. Because let's pick up in the text in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, That disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember, that's John. That's the author of this book. John therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. But he wasn't, I don't think, but naked, okay? He had some type of clothes on, but he didn't have all his clothes on. And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Stop right there. Some of you love Peter, don't you? Some of you have fallen in love with this dude, because some of you are like Peter. When Peter realizes it's Jesus, he puts on his clothes, and the dude jumps in the lake. you got to love it you got to love what he does. And some of you are like that. You get excited and you make split-second decisions that you don't necessarily regret, but maybe the people standing around you say, what exactly were they thinking when they did that? You know, you leave all your buddies behind to fend with the fish. And remember, what's interesting about this account is Peter's the dude that said, hey, I'm going fishing. He's the one that also abandons his buddies. So you know who he is? He's the guy that texts you and says, hey, I need some help doing this thing at my house. And then when you go over, they don't do it. They allow you to do all the work. That's kind of what Peter did in this account. But if this whole account is meant to remember what I said in the introduction, it's meant to show us how the church functions in the world, then the fish, the fish, the net filled with fish is likely representing people. As in those that do not know Christ, those that have not repented and believed, those that are still living in spiritual darkness. Remember, when Jesus first finds Simon Peter and Andrew on the beach in Matthew chapter 4, that scripture that Jared read earlier, what does Jesus say to them? He says, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. So we see their account kind of, their whole introduction to Jesus, it's bookend with fish, becoming fishers of men. Now, in John chapter 21, we've made it all the way through the the Gospel of John. They have followed Jesus. They have done what he's asked them to do up until that point. They have witnessed his death and his resurrection. They're fishing now. Jesus tells them where to cast their net. They obey his command. The net is full, and maybe, just maybe, that's here to emphasize what Jesus emphasized with Peter when he first met him, that we are to become fishers of men. And that of all the things that we can do to honor Christ, to obey Christ, like we already talked about, uh, of all the things that we can do, helping people come from spiritual darkness into spiritual life, to place their trust in Jesus Christ, to begin following Christ themselves, that has to be supremely important. As in, think about this, for those of you that have been here for a while, it doesn't matter how many labor for your neighbors we do. It doesn't matter how much money we spend in those events. It doesn't matter how many hot dogs and how many bags of popcorn we hand out at the movie nights 
whenever we do the Capitol Grounds movie thing. It doesn't matter how many kids we love on at Kids Fest in the spring. It doesn't matter how many people we send to Mexico every year. None of that matters if we are not bothered by the fact that people we come in contact with, if they don't come to know Christ, they're going to spend eternity separated from God. Now that is the truth. I know that that's an uncomfortable truth, and we'd rather talk about something else. But that's the truth nonetheless. And Christ's church must be a church that cares deeply about doing what? About bringing in the net. Now let me say this as well. Maybe this will light a fire inside of some of you, and some of you will hear this, and you'll say, okay, this is the last straw. Finally, I'm going to go and I'm going to intentionally share the good news of Jesus Christ with my loved one, my neighbor, my co-worker, my family member, whatever that might be, and you go and you do that. Praise God, by the way, for my anticipation of your obedience. I am happy for you. I'm happy that God has led you in that direction. But I also want you to be completely aware of reality. Because reality is that pulling in that net is difficult work. And I'm not talking about that it's physically difficult. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm saying it's spiritually difficult. It's an emotionally difficult taxing thing to be serious about drawing in the net and helping people to follow Christ. You're going to show a lot of love and you're going to share the gospel many different times before you find one person that really begins following Christ. And discouragement may very well set in and you might become angry and you'll wonder why should I even bother if this is the way that people are going to treat you and you're going to be tempted to fall back into safe mode where you don't have to worry about being rejected, or you don't have to worry about people turning their back on you. Case in point, my beautiful wife sitting up here on the uh, front row, Shasta, uh, we don't believe in accidents, and I hope that, that you don't either. We believe that God places people in our lives for a reason. Sometimes that comes through what would seem to be, of course it's not, but what seems to be a just chance encounter, and sometimes that comes about through someone introducing us to a friend of theirs or, 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 you know, whatever that could possibly be. But we have had so many people that we have befriended, that we've ministered to, that we've loved and nurtured through some of the most difficult circumstances that you can even begin to imagine, and, and that we've begged God to change the heart of only to have them respond by eventually abandoning us. And decide that they don't really need us anymore. They certainly don't need Jesus Christ. And they go on their merry little way, skipping off into the darkness, never to be seen or heard from again. So I'm going to warn you, this is not for the faint of heart. You will be sold out. I guarantee it. You will find yourself, if you're not careful, sometimes disappointed. You may be heartbroken if that's something that you struggle with. Here's the point. The third characteristic of Christ's church as it ministers in the world that we can never forget about others, the only way that you'll keep from going absolutely insane and crying yourself to sleep at night is if you always remember that second characteristic that we've already covered, that we are just called to be obedient, aren't we? That's all we're called to do. We share, we invest, We love to the best of our ability. We pray, we beg God to move, but we remember there's only one person that can change a heart. And it ain't you and it ain't me. Which I think gives us a great segue to the fourth characteristic of Christ's church as it ministers in the world. Not only is Christ's church honest about its failures, not only is it thrilled with obedience, and not only does it never forget about others, but now finally, number four, it anticipates seeing God face to face. It anticipates seeing God face to face. Let's look now finally at verses 9 through 14. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Christ has met them on the shore. Now they're eating a meal together. The account is full of details, including not only that they're large fish, but it even tells us how many fish there were. And a lot of people have written on the number of 153 fish, and maybe that's significant. I don't know if that's significant or not. But what we do know is that, think about how this has played out. They're honest with Jesus. They're obedient to Jesus. They continue to care about the people that Jesus cares about. And now they get to experience Christ. They get to eat this meal and to sit down and to fellowship with him. And if this account is meant to show us how we, Christ Church, are to minister in the world, this may very well be a picture of how we should anticipate that day in the future when we get to see God face to face. We get to have our charcoal fire in heaven, I guess, if there's charcoal. I don't know. But we get to fellowship with our Savior. We get to worship Him. We get to honor Him for all of eternity because of what? Because of how good He's been to us. Now let me give you this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sing, together, sing together once more. Do you all remember Enron? Some of you pups don't know what Enron is. Yeah, I called you a pup. Uh, you're too young, it's okay. Um, I was pretty young whenever the whole Enron thing happened, but Enron was one of the largest um, energy companies that existed in the United States. Based in Houston, Texas, had a major stake in the oil industry, was consistently pointed to as being a great investment. It was a company that people bought their stock and then you sat on it and you retired on it whenever you got old, right? Until 2001, when it became known that Enron was taking part in some really shady accounting practices. And one of the things that they were doing, among others, was that they would purchase a piece of property and they would say, okay, uh, eventually in 10 years we're going to make a $50 million profit on this piece of property. And even though we haven't made that profit yet, we're going to go ahead and show on our books that we have. We're going to count that as profit so that basically so that our company looks better and it looks stronger. It would kind of be similar to you going out today and you buy a treadmill because you want to lose 30 pounds. And because you've bought the treadmill, you immediately begin telling people, hey, guess what I did? I lost 30 pounds. That's basically what Enron did in their accounting practices. We all know that's not how it works. So this was fraud. The company eventually collapsed and people point toward Enron as being one of the biggest accounting frauds of all time. Well, with money... In accounting procedures, that's fraud. That doesn't work, right? But in our world, we get to take what we've been given and what we've been promised, and we get to anticipate with complete and total certainty that we're going to experience it in the future. So church, one day, guess what's going to happen? You are going to get to gaze into the face of our God. You realize that? Like here, like let me just kind of share with you a little bit of, of what we believe. We believe that one day Jesus is going to come back. You realize that? Everybody that has ever died is going to rise from the grave. Maybe different times, granted, but everybody 
that has ever lived is going to rise from the grave. Some people are going to rise to life where they're going to get to experience God for all of eternity, and some people are going to rise to punishment where they don't. And we're going to get to stand before God. You're going to get to look into the face of God, and you're going to get to know God in a way that you've never known him before. Now, for those of you, some of you, I bet, I don't know for sure, but I bet that there are some of us in this room right now who aren't going to rise to spend eternity with God. We're going to rise to experience judgment. And the promise of the gospel is that you can right now, as you sit there, you can choose to repent and you can choose to believe in Jesus Christ. And when you repent and when you believe, that event that I told you about earlier that we call justification by faith, God declares you as righteous in his eyes. Not based on anything that you've done, not based on any merit, not based on you know, this, this, this thing that you've got really going on in your life. You finally read through the Bible or you finally got to the point where you could pray for 10 straight minutes or you, know, you finally started tithing or whatever that looks like. No, that's not it at all. It is based completely and totally on the fact that you would admit that there is nothing that you have to offer the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that you would base everything about your life on your faith in him. That you'd allow him to become the Lord and the master of everything about you. Everything about you. Now, you can do that this morning. Do you realize that? You can right now call on the name of the Lord. You can say, God, I want to repent and I want to believe. And God tells us that if you do that, he will save you. Now, there are three ways that, that, that you can respond to that this morning. These are the three ways we respond here at Freshwater. The first one is maybe the easiest in the way that I would encourage you. Um, when we stand and when we sing in just a second, I stand at the Connect table located in the foyer. And as we sing, I stand there to receive you. If there's something that I can pray for you about, if you're in this process by which you're trying to figure out what does it look like for me to follow Christ, what does repentance look like for me, um, I'd love to talk with you about that. And maybe you've chosen to trust in Jesus Christ and you know that you need to be baptized. If you to come back and talk with me about that, I'd love to receive you during this next song. The second way you can respond is on your Connect card and your worship guide. You can mark that bubble at the top that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. We'll contact you this week. If you throw that in the offering basket, we'll contact you about what that looks like and what it looks like to um, repent and begin following Christ. And then the third way and the final way is just to catch me after the service. Just come up and grab my hand and say, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus and I'd like to hear what that looks like now to come in fellowship with other Christians today.